Are you ready for some good news? Some of you are. I mean, if you're not, I mean, I got something else I can give you. I mean, I could just beat you up with a bunch of guilt and condemnation. I mean, I could give you a bunch of a list of things that you need to do and set some expectations that are impossible for you to meet if that's what you'd rather have, but I'd rather preach good news. So uh, I found some. And I'm going to share it with us. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. So far in our series going through Hebrews, we've completed the first three chapters. And today we're going to finish another. But instead of beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4, we're actually going to start in verse 12. And the reason is because I just preached a message over the first half of Hebrews 4 back in September. In the first 11 verses, the writer's talking about how God has made a Sabbath rest available for the people of God and that we should make every effort to enter that rest. Now, that does not mean make every effort to uh, get to heaven. Uh, it's talking about um, resting in the finality of the cross. Make every effort in order for it to sink in that Jesus is enough, that he accomplished everything that God required. Make it sink in, trust, and rest in the fact that there is not one thing that you and I can gain from God that Jesus hasn't already secured for us. In that message, we looked at what it meant to honor the Sabbath in the Old Testament and how that was pointing to this greater Sabbath that Jesus has made available to us now. The title of the message was Honoring the Sabbath, and the whole point of it was that we, we honor the Sabbath today not by refusing to work on Sundays, but by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you to go listen to it. You can do that either on the church website or on the ET Sermons podcast because it is one of those truths that, that when you see it makes you go, well, this changes everything. And it really does. So go listen to it if you haven't. And so because it's only been a few months since I preached that, I'm not going to do it again here. So we're going to skip over the first 11 verses as far as this series goes and pick up in verse 12. So let's all stand together and look at this. We're going to read 12 and go through the end of the chapter. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for the truth that you have for us here in your word. And Lord, I pray that you open our eyes to see it. God, I stand here today just declaring that just how desperately I need you God, there are so many things that I could be tempted into putting my confidence in and relying on, but 
Lord, the bottom line is there is nothing. I'm nothing without you. I need you, God. I pray that we all will leave here today with that attitude, with that, just that mantra, God, that we need you. So, Lord, show us that. In your name I pray, amen. You know, one of the most common reoccurring dreams that people have is that dream where you suddenly find yourself without any clothes on in a crowd full of people. Um, Anybody ever had that? Don't raise your hand. It reveals some disturbing things about you if you do. I'm just kidding. Um, On on a list of uh, the most common dreams that people have, being naked in public is, is one of them. And it ranks right there in between a dream, dreaming about somebody breaking into your home and having a dream that you are behind the wheel of a vehicle that you just cannot control. I've had that dream too. It is, it is miserable. But it's very common to have that where you all of a sudden find yourself without any clothes on, everybody is around, and there's no way you're able to cover yourself up or do anything about it. It's a dream more than it is, or I mean, it's a nightmare more than it is a dream, really. But you know what? You're living that dream. Every one of us are living that dream right now. Your secrets do not exist. Your masks that you wear to try to hide who you really are are worthless. Your touched up selfies with all the filters in the world are not hiding the truth. God knows. He knows. And he sees it. David is both rejoicing over and lamenting the fact that God knows. In Psalm 39 when he says, you have searched me and known me. He says, you have known my thoughts from afar and are intimately, intimately acquainted with all my ways. And then he says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the highest heights, you are there. If I go to the lowest lows, you are there. There's no way I can escape from you. If I'm in a crowd, you're there. If I'm all alone, you're there. Yes, he knows. No matter how deep or dark the trail goes, God knows there are no secrets. You can hide from me, and I can hide from you, but you can't hide from God. He knows. Some of you may be pretty good at hiding from your spouse or your kids, the the dark secrets that are there inside of you, but you can't hide from him. There is not a room in your house that he doesn't see into there is not a motivation of the heart no matter how clever you are at justifying it yourself that God doesn't sniff out he knows and although I think many of us have just lost the respect of the presence of God it is there nonetheless we are all completely exposed unable to cover anything up. This is what verse 12 and 13 are telling us here. Look at verse 12 again. It's a verse that gets quoted a lot. It just says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no other book in this world that can claim to be able to do that. Nothing, 
I mean, God's word touches us deep down in places, places that we try to hide, places that we aren't able to or aren't willing to acknowledge, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions just of our heart. How in the world is the Word of God able to do that? Well, if you only see the Bible or assume that it is basically just an instruction manual, then it is not going to do that manuals don't reveal or change anyone's heart. If you just read the Bible simply to find out what it is that you need to do, then your focus is misplaced. It's on the outside. And I'm telling you right now, God is not near as concerned with what you do on the outside as he is with the condition of what's going on on the inside. Because he knows that everything we do, our behavior is just a reflection of the heart. If the heart's out of whack, so is the behavior going to be. In order to change someone's behavior, you first have to change the heart. The Bible is not about us and what we need to do. It is about God. It is a story. It is one big story, one biography about God. And the more we learn about him, the more we become aware of the condition of our own hearts and we see this in Isaiah 6 when the prophet finds himself before the very throne of God and and just having this revelation of the absolute perfection of the holiness of God his immediate reaction to that was not wow or awesome or oh my goodness his immediate reaction was woe is me in other words I am a dead man I should not be here The reason why he said that was because God's holiness was just so overpowering that in light of that, he became acutely aware of just how wicked and sinful he was, and he knew that there was no way he could remain in that perfect presence like that and live. He knew that God's just and only response to his sin being there in his perfect presence was for God to kill him. So he said, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm done. But luckily for, for Isaiah, an angel came and did for him what he was unable to do himself and made him right there before God. Sound familiar? That's the gospel. But this is why God's word is able to reveal our hearts. We read it to know him, and the more we see him, find out about him, the more in awe we are, and then the more uh, we become aware of our own condition in light of who he is. And then verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's not one thing about us that God doesn't know. Like I said, we are completely exposed with no way of covering ourselves up. That should be a pretty terrifying thought for some of you. You think you've gotten away with something. You think you've been able to keep some things hidden. But no, you haven't gotten away with anything He knows, and make no mistake about it, God is not dismissive 
about sin. I think some of us have got this misunderstanding about God and his grace when it comes to this. We hear a lot these days about the grace of God and as well we should. But I think some of us have kind of taken that and think that grace means that when we sin, God's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. But that is wrong. It is a huge deal to God. And so some of you may think you've gotten away with something or you think that that God sees it, but he's just like, oh, it's all right. It's not that big of a deal, but it is. And the day will come when it all comes to a head and your sin finds you out because 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says the Lord will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Yikes. Needless to say, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 are not very good news. Nobody is rejoicing over the fact that we are completely exposed and we can hide nothing from God, that he sees all the trash, all the dirt, and everything that we are staying hidden. That's why I haven't heard one amen yet come from anybody, right? I mean, nobody's waving a flag with the word exposed written across the banner and and waving God. No, that is not good news because we know what's there. We know what God is looking at. But yet, jump down and look again at what verse 16 says. And pay attention to this. Listen. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In light of what verse 12 and 13 say, verse 16 doesn't even seem possible. And then to say to approach with confidence, confident. I mean, what in the world do we have to be confident about if the motive of our hearts are completely bare and exposed before God. If verse 12 and 13 are really true, then it seems like instead of coming to his throne with confidence, that we really should be coming with fear and guilt and shame, but, but anything but confidence. I mean, notice what kind of throne it, it says this is, a throne of grace, which in my mind is a complete oxymoron, which are two things that are opposite of one another, don't belong together, because thrones don't represent grace, thrones represent power and rule and judgment, but grace, and then look what it says comes from that throne, so that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. Instead of judgment, condemnation, and punishment, we get mercy and grace and help. That's the kind of throne I want to be subject to. So how in the world do you go from nothing is hidden from God, he sees all your darkness and your sin, you're completely exposed to come to the throne of God to receive mercy and grace not only that but come with confidence 
confident that you are going to receive those things, not coming with fear, not groveling and begging for it, not coming to bring a sacrifice or some kind of payment that you think you've got to offer God so that you can get these things in return, but fully confident that those things are yours. How do we go from 13 to 16? Tell you right now, not everybody does. Some people, the story ends with verse 13. Everything about you is laid bare before God, and what's written after that does not end well. But that could change. The only way we get from 13 to 16 is by completely putting our hope and trust in verse 14 and 15. Let's look at them again. Verse 14, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What does that mean? That we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. If you've not grown up in church or you have you know, no knowledge at all of Old Testament Judaism, then this language can be pretty confusing. But in the Old Testament, the high priest was the man who was responsible for carrying the sins of the people into the presence of God. The people would bring their sacrifice, some type of animal, either a sheep, a goat, or a bull. The priest would slaughter that animal on the altar. Then he would take the blood and enter into this room called the Holy of Holies, the innermost place of the temple where the very manifest presence of God resided to ask for mercy and ask for God to forgive those sins. He was a mediator between God and the people who would go and plead your case before God. And so this is saying that even though we live in the New Testament era, era, we still have a high priest And our high priest is Jesus. But instead of us having to sacrifice an animal, he sacrificed himself. Instead of passing through the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the people, he passed through the heavens and went directly into the very source of the presence of God to be that mediator for us to to plead our case before the Father. The priests in the Old Testament would take that blood They wouldn't bring the whole sacrifice in there. They just take the blood and bring it into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it around. And they did that because essentially they were the attorneys for the people presenting the evidence of why they should be forgiven. So the priest would go before God and go, okay, God, here's the blood. This is what you required. This was what said had to be paid in order for the forgiveness. And so I'm showing this to you and asking you for mercy. The reason why Jesus passed through the heavens because he presented himself as our advocate, as our attorney before God. But instead of presenting the blood of an animal, he opened his hands and said, God, here I am. This is the evidence. Father, forgive them because I have met the requirement in full. I have paid the price in full. He presented himself as the evidence for our forgiveness. And the last line of verse 14 says, let us hold fast our confession. What does that mean? What, what confession? 
Pay attention to the connections in this verse here because it starts off with a therefore. Therefore is connecting everything said right before that to everything that's going to be said after it. The before was that there is nothing hidden from God. He sees it all. He knows. And in light of that fact, and because Jesus became our mediator, because he became our high priest who paid and pleased for our forgiveness, let us hold fast our confession. And our confession is, we cannot make ourselves right for you, God. We cannot fix ourselves. Help us, Jesus. That's our confession. And so since everything is seen and there are no secrets, since all of your trash is just sitting there laid bare before God, then praise God, let us hold fast to you. I need you, Jesus. Yes, I am a mess. I am broken and I need your help. Let us never, ever, ever, ever get away from I am broken and I need you, Jesus. Too often we tend to have the exact opposite attitude of that. We get on our high horse and we start looking down on others. Think we got it better than them. Think I'm right, you're wrong. See those who do certain things and we become judgmental. Start condemning those who don't see things the same way we do. Think that person's not good enough for whatever. I am. Start proving ourselves all right, they're wrong, and putting people down. Do not be like the religious man that Jesus talked about in Luke 18. Who said, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, swindlers and adulterers and even this tax collector here beside me. No, be the tax collector who stood there beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus made the distinction between those two and he said, the tax collector, the one everybody thought was so wicked, he was justified. And that religious man was not. It's because he was holding fast to his confession. I'm broken and I need you, Jesus. If we ever begin to move away from that, we begin to drift over into some religious stuff and we do not have the gospel and then verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin let me try to explain this so sin brings weight With sin comes the weight of shame and guilt and despair. There is this weightiness that comes when we do things that we know we're not supposed to do. Have you ever had a moment where all that you hate about yourself has just suddenly become public? If not, then you're on the clock. Because the Bible says there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. That's not a threat. It's the way the universe works. Your sin will find you out. It's just a fact. Maybe you haven't experienced that yet. 
Maybe you've just been close to somebody who has. Or you know the fear of what it will be like when that happens to you. You know what kind of shame and embarrassment there's going to be. You know the weight that is going to be falling down on you that happens. Well, what just happened in this text is that it says that in that moment, when shame and guilt and despair begin bearing down on your soul, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with that. We have one who can, who knows. It's saying that Jesus can sympathize with you in that moment. He's not going, oh, come on, when are you going to get it together? Am I going to have to strike you down so that you can finally get this? No, that is not how Jesus is. It's saying that Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, looks at our shame. He looks at our guilt and our despair. And instead of getting mad and condemning us, he goes, I know. I know what that feels like. I felt that weight crushing down on me. I know it. And the reason why he can sympathize with us in that is because of the last line in the verse. Because he is the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I mean, All the temptations that you and I face in this world every day. Those temptations to pull us away from God's best. Jesus experienced the very same ones. Try to get your head around that. And I know that anytime we hear something like that that speaks to Jesus' humanity... And in the way that he can relate to us, I know that for a lot of us, the first thought that comes in our head is, yeah, but still, he was God and I'm not, which diminishes the impact of what it means for him to be able to relate to us in his humanity. But the writer of Hebrews actually feels this argument coming on. And so in the next chapter, he is going to answer that which is what we are going to dig right into next week. And it is so good. I'm telling you, when we look at it, some of you are going to see Jesus in a whole new light. And it is so good. But today, this morning, the lesson is that even though you have no secrets that you can keep from God, even though he looks down and he knows it, all, not just every wicked act that you commit, but also every wicked intention that hasn't even resulted in an act yet. Even though God knows all of that, we can draw near to him with confidence because we have a high priest, we have a mediator, an advocate who sympathizes with us. And so what that means is that when we do sin and the weight of that, that, that guilt and shame and despair begins to bear down on us, that you and I shouldn't flee from God in that moment. We shouldn't go, oh, I blew it again. 
I might as well just stay in this because there is no way that God can be that patient with me. I don't even deserve to go to church. I mean, who am I fooling? No, this text is screaming at us that when we find ourselves in that place, we should run as fast as we can straight to Jesus. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, that the sign of a mature Christian is not someone who has learned to manage their behavior well. Not someone who has learned to bring their sin under control. The sign of a mature Christian is someone who, when they do sin, runs to Jesus instead of away from him. Because that's somebody who knows Jesus and understands the gospel better than most. So yes, God sees it all. He knows. And yes, he is serious about sin. It is a huge deal to him. In fact, he is so serious about it and it is such a big deal that he sacrificed his only son so that you and I could be set free from the control of it. I mean, you think he would have allowed Jesus, who is perfect in every way, who knew no sin whatsoever, that he would have allowed him to feel that weight of guilt and shame for sin that you and I committed? Do you think that he would have allowed him to, to, to experience those same temptations that you and I are, are pulled by every day and then to let him hang naked on a cross and drown in his own blood? If he wasn't serious about sin, there is not any way for a second that he would have allowed any of that. But he paid a high price so that you and I would know how serious he is about us being set free from the control of that sin. If you are in Christ, sin no longer has control over you. You now have the ability, you have been given the power to say no. Not today. But until we leave this world where Jesus comes back and makes everything right, we are going to fall in that sin from time to time. And when we do, we can run to Jesus with full confidence, knowing that when we do, when we get there, we are going to find mercy and grace and help in the time of need. And when is that time? Every single day. That time of need is every day. We say, I'm broken and I need you, Jesus. Because a lot of those temptations that come are temptations to put our confidence in this or that or put our hope in other things. Every day we cannot get away from, I need you. So this morning he just wants us to know that we can run to him. We don't have to be afraid of him. We don't have to, to, to come thinking that we've got to offer him something to get those things in return. We've got nothing to offer Nothing that he needs. Nothing that can buy him off. There's no promise you can make. There's no act you can perform that is going to impress him enough 
to do something for you in return or to do something that Jesus hasn't already done. All you do is come to him and saying, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing but the sin and the junk that you see every day. And I'm coming declaring that I need you. I need you. And he shows up mightily. That's all he's looking for. Let us never move away from needing Jesus every single day. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. God, and I believe that your mercy and your grace is at work even now in this place right here. And Lord, I pray for those who walked into this building this morning carrying that guilt and shame. Maybe it was because of something that they did last night or something that happened earlier in the week or something that that, that happened years ago, but they're still carrying that mess around. Thinking that you're looking at them different than you're looking at other people. Lord, I pray this morning they are set free, that you relieve them of that weight. They would come to you knowing that you can sympathize with them. Lord, that you're not condemning, you're setting free, you're forgiving, you're releasing, and filling with your spirit. God, I know there are some in here who their story would stop at verse 13. Because they've been putting their confidence in everything else but the finished work of Jesus. Lord, I pray that today that changes for them. You bring us to repentance, God. That takes our eyes off of the things of this world and puts them directly onto you. Lord, let us know your goodness and your mercy this morning. Lord, let us walk out of here with our loads a little bit lighter. Because we have traded that weight for your yoke, which you say is light. So Holy Spirit, would you come and just accomplish your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen we sing and worship for just a few more minutes it's just going to be an opportunity for you to respond to however the Lord is maybe speaking to you in this this morning if you'd like somebody to pray with you about